number two is this. When others threaten to silence your faith, speak of the things you have already seen and heard. When others threaten to silence your faith, speak of the things that you have already seen and heard. Now, it's crazy that as we're going through Acts chapter 4, that we are in a culture where this type of application is becoming more and more relevant. You know, uh, truth is being debated, um, silencing someone because of their faith. But let's look at what, what the scriptures tell us to do. Uh, pick back up at verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go outside, out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, what shall we do? To, what do we do to these men? For indeed, a notable miracle has been done through them. It's evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. Now, notice, notice now. They're, they acknowledge that it's a miracle, but it's where? They've asked Peter and John to leave the room. It's just them. They're like, okay, so this is their private conversation, right, that, that we're privy to here. They're going, all right, nobody can deny what really happened. You know, the, everybody in Jerusalem's talking about it. No one can deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on, they speak to no man in this name. And then they're right back to it. They don't even want to speak the name of Jesus. They don't even want to say his name. They're like, you know, you know the name I'm talking about. We're not even going to speak it here. So they called them and commanded them. In other words, they said, all right, come back in. They called them, commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the men, the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. Now let's pause there. Peter and John did what? They made it super clear that they are, they are going to listen to God's commands over the commands of the Sanhedrin. They're like, you know, look at, look at verse 19. Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. Now the response here by Peter and John is brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. The Sanhedrin being the religious leaders, whatever instruction that they give should have been, what? In alignment with what God would instruct for his people. That was their role. So Peter and John are suggesting that they, the Sanhedrin, are what? Out of alignment with what God would want. Because Peter and John should have said, well, clearly you guys speak in alignment with God, and we should do whatever you say because you're in alignment with God. And Peter and John challenged that. They're going, no, you guys are out of sync here. Should we obey God or should we obey you? 
Well, the Sanhedrin, it's, it's a conundrum, right? How are they going to answer that? They, clearly, they want to say God, but then if they say you should listen to God, not us, then they lose their influence. They lose their authority. Well, how do they respond to that? So they, they recognize that. So Peter and John are suggesting that they're out of alignment, and then they say this, you judge, you decide. In other words, you examine, you look at it, you decide, you, you determine who's out of sync here with what God wants. Oh, it's just, it's, a, it's that little stab and twist, like, you know, you, decide, you know good and well you're out of alignment with what God wants. He, you know it, I know it, everybody else knows it, and, and they say, you decide, who should we follow? You or God? The idea of the Sanhedrin not being on the same page with God, it would have been unthinkable. I mean, that was their job. That's what they were supposed to do. You decide. Are you going to do what God desires or what you want? Now, before we come, <laughs> before we come down too harshly on the Sanhedrin and the spiritual leaders, let's ask that same question of our own heart, <laughs> right? Let's, I mean, let's step back for a moment. Let me ask this question. Am I doing what God desires or am I just doing what I want? Same question. Am I doing what God desires or am I doing just doing what I want? That's a tough question. It's a really tough question. I can remember the probably probably the first time that I really grappled with that question. I was I was um, in college. I was pursuing uh, architecture. In fact, I'd wanted to be an, an, an architect. I literally came home from kindergarten. I'd been playing with blocks all day and building like little houses in kindergarten. I came home and I asked my mom. I said, "What do you call? What do you call someone that, that designs houses?" And she said, "That's an architect." And in kindergarten, I said, "That's what I want to be. That's what I want to be." And from that point on, I, I did, you know, people would say, well, you've got to be good at math, and I'm a, then I'll be good at math. People would say, well, you've got to be creative, and you have to be able to draw, and you have to be able to, you have to, be able to do all that. Then I'll, then I'll do those things. I'll do whatever it takes. And I had teachers for pretty much from middle school through high school and into college that all helped me prepare for a career in architecture. When I, my church even had, when I was a sophomore in high school, my church even had like a career day, you know, at, at the church, and they brought in Christian business owners and all these different people, and, and I remember uh, our youth pastor brought in an architect because he knew that that was my passion, that was where I was headed, and brought in an architect, and I, I brought in some of the blueprints and some of the things that I had done uh, from middle school and high school and showed some of my artwork and designs. And the guy told me, he said, when you graduate for, with, with your degree in architecture, he said, you come talk to me. You've got a job. He said, I, I want to talk to you then. But then, God. <laughs> but God. Sophomore year, college. I felt like a rug had been pulled out from underneath me. I was miserable doing what I loved. I was miserable doing something that I had been planning on since I was in kindergarten. I had, I had told everybody from kindergarten, first grade, middle school, high school, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to be. I'm going to move to a major city. I'm going to be an architect. I'm going to make an influence on the skyline of the city that I live. And that was my plan. I wanted to think about, 
Think about this. I wanted, I wanted to build something that would influence a, a city's skyline. And then God said, I got other plans for you. I was reading in Scripture, and the Apostle Paul says that God was kind and allowed me to become a wise master builder. And I looked at that, and I was like, wait a second. We just looked at, at that in one, of my, in one of my classes in architecture. We just looked at those words, master builder. I looked it up. Do you know what word the Apostle Paul used? Architect. That's the Greek, that's the Greek word that he used there. He says, God was kind and allowed me to become an architect, building upon the foundation of Jesus Christ and helping others build upon the foundation which has already been laid. And it was in that moment that God was saying, listen, Chris, I, I've, I've known since you were in kindergarten that I wanted you to be a, an architect, but I want you to build upon a foundation that has already been laid. That is Jesus Christ. So when people ask me today, I can either tell them I'm a pastor or I can tell them I'm an architect that's building on a foundation that has already been laid. In fact, when I think about when we started the, the, even coming up with the name for the church, Grace Point, even my architecture background had an influence on that. And here's why. Remember, I had this dream of influencing the, the city's skyline. What is the skyline? It's where heaven meets earth. It's a grace point. It's a place where those two things come together. It's a place where, and the, and the idea of grace point being the great commission, the great commandment, it's, a, it's where things come together. And that whole concept, that whole idea of influencing the skyline, we're going to influence the skyline right here in Mooresville. Not, not with skyscrapers. But we're going to make sure that heaven comes down and meets earth in this community. And we want people to know Christ. But that doesn't happen unless we what? We grapple with that question. Do I want to do what I want to do? Or do I do what God wants me to do? And I had to abandon what I, what I have wanted to do for years. I thought I was going to disappoint everybody. I thought for sure, I thought I'm going to go back and I'm going to tell my teachers and I'm going to tell everybody that has helped me along the way. I've had drafting teachers in high school. I had, you know, my math teachers, everybody that helped me, you know, here's what you're going to need to know. And I remember going back and telling, you know, I was telling a couple of people about it and I said, uh, God's called me to ministry. I had some news to tell you. You know, God's called me to ministry. I remember one person saying, I thought you had some news to tell us. And I was like, oh, I, that's it. I'm going to ministry. They were like, Chris, we've known forever that you were going to go into ministry. I, I asked my youth pastor, I was like, if you knew, why didn't you tell me? And he said, listen, he said, he said, it was so obvious that God had his hand on you and was going to use you for ministry, but you were so focused on architecture that we, we knew that we didn't want to influence you, that God had to do something to convince you to do something else. And if we told you that we saw it, then you might come to a point where you questioned, was I just doing it because they told me, or was I doing it because God told me? And so I literally, all of my mentors were like, oh, we've, we've known this for years. We're just surprised that it took you so long to, to realize it. All of us grapple with that question. Am I going to obey God? Am I going to just do what I want to do? If we're really going to make a difference, we, we, have to, to, we have to follow what the Lord desires. Look again at verse 20. For we cannot speak 
the th- but the things which we have seen and heard. Peter and John made it super clear. God comes first. And that they're going to speak of the things that they have seen and heard. Think about this. There's lots of things, lots of theological subjects that can be argued or up for debate. Let's just consider one of them. For example, the existence of God. I don't know if you've ever been to a a theological debate before. I've been to some. I've been to to some high-profile debates. They're, They're fascinating to watch, to listen to. But just consider this one, the existence of God. You have one side, the atheist, and he's going to argue that there, there is no God. You have the other side, you have uh, the uh, Christian who's going to insist, no, there is a God. And they're going to go back and forth for hours presenting their best arguments. On the Christian side, you can use the ontological argument. Something that only exists in the mind is inferior to something that exists in reality. Therefore, since God exists in the mind, he must also exist in reality. Okay, that, that, I'm like, what? How about this one? The cosmological argument. This one's more my speed. Everything has a cause. This was caused by this, this was this, this was this. Everything has a cause. Eventually, you have to come back to, you have to get to a point where there is what? An uncaused cause. The uncaused cause, that's God. Okay, that's, that's, I, can, I can get my, hand, my mind around that one. How about the teleological argument? This one is one of my favorites. Teleological argument. Everything has design and purpose. You can look at creation, you can look at the stars, you can look at the moon, you can look at the sun, you can look at the precision of everything, and you can go... Seems like everything has design. They say if the earth were tilted this this far, when, you know, if the, this or the gravitational pull were a different a, a different measure, I mean, everything works precise. One of the best arguments is what they call Paley's watch. Paley's watch. Imagine here's Paley's argument. He said if you're walking along the beach, okay. And you come across and you see a pocket watch. And you pick up the pocket watch. And you look at it and you go, look what the ocean just, just uh, you know, uh, washed up. And then, and then you open it up and you look inside this pocket watch and you see the cogs and the springs and the precision. And it's just, would you assume that this pocket watch was created just randomly at the ocean? All these parts just randomly gathered together, formed a pocket watch, and then washed up on, the, up on the shore? Or would you look at the precision of this and go, where there's a pocket watch, there's a pocket watch maker. Because of the precision of this, and the, uh, clearly there's a pocket watch maker. I mean, you and I would agree you know, the pocket watch didn't just, boom, exist. The form itself, we would do what? It, has, the, it has, a, has a maker, a pocket watch maker. Therefore, the universe has what? A universe maker, someone who created it. How about the anthropological argument? Intellect cannot have come from non-intelligent matter. I've never seen a rock uh, evolve into a thinking rock. You know, wow, that rock is really smart. No, we don't say that. We say, you're dumb as rocks, right? That's what we say. Because what? 
non-intelligent matter doesn't become intelligent. Doesn't happen. So you could use that argument. The moral argument. What's the moral argument? Man has, a, has an inner sense of right and wrong. There's something within us that no matter if you're a believer or not, there's something within you that you would say, there are some things that just seem morally wrong. Murder. Wouldn't you think that murder is one of those things that you would hope that even if you're not a Christian believer, that you would agree that murder is a despicable thing that shouldn't happen? Why? Why? Where does that sense of right and wrong come from? Now, with all of those, and some of those are really good arguments, what's going to happen? The debate is back and forth and back and forth, right? You got this side. Well, no, there's no way. Here's the, here's the problem with that argument. Here's the problem with this one. Every single one of those arguments, even though some are stronger than the others, every single one of those arguments are going to be met with a counter-argument. Let me tell you a better way. Let me tell you a better way. Speak the things which you have heard and seen. That's what Peter and John said we're going to do. Peter and John didn't say, all right, you say what you want to, but we're going to walk out of here with the best cosmological argument you've ever seen, and we're going to develop a theological argument for the existence of God. They didn't do that. They didn't say, we're going to present all the arguments for why Jesus raised from the dead. That was their focus, right? They could have done that. Here's what they did, the better way. They spoke of the things that they had heard and seen. Why? What, what would those things be? God changed my heart. If I am debating someone, and I say, let me tell you what God did in me. When I was 15, I was this way. I had an encounter with God. God changed my life, and he changed my heart, and he changed my attitude. They can't argue with that. You can't debate that. Why? Because that's what God did within me. It's not, it's not a theological debate at that point. It is, it is, I'm just sharing with you what I've seen and what I've heard, and that is that God changed me. He changed my heart. Since I've been a Christian, let me tell you what God has done in me. Do you know what that's called? It's called being a witness. A witness does what? They share what they have seen and heard. You want the best way to witness? The best way to witness is not developing the best theological argument. The best way to witness is, here's what I've seen and heard in my life. I once was blind, and now I see. I once was this way, and now I'm this way. I once used to do this, and now I don't do that anymore. I once walked this way, and now I walk this way. I may still struggle every now and then, but my heart's desire is to follow the Lord. I have been changed. You ask me, how I know he lives, he lives within my heart. The, the idea is that Peter and John are getting to is they're saying, well, you tell us not to speak the name of Jesus. You can't tell us that we cannot speak of the things that we've seen, that we have heard, because we've seen too many lives changed to deny God. You hear the difference? You see the difference there? 
These are not points of debate. A witness shares the things seen and heard. So when others threaten to silence your faith, speak of the things. Speak of the things you've seen and heard. Speak of the things that God has done within you.